Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. You can learn more about Renourish on their website at re-nourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish. Welcome to Climify. I'm Eric Benson, and I'll be your host this season as we talk to climate experts from all over the world to help us design educators fight the climate crisis in our classrooms. And yes, I'm also a design educator. I've been teaching for 15 years here at the University of Illinois. But even if you're not a design educator listening to this show, there's so much useful information jam-packed in each that you too can learn how to do your part to help reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. In this second episode, I'm talking to climate scientist Gerardo Solis. I met Gerardo through a colleague of mine and was instantly interested in his research in the Arctic Circle. Gerardo is originally from Costa Rica with a PhD in interdisciplinary ecology from the University of Florida in Gainesville, where he lives and teaches. His research currently is focused on understanding the impacts of rising Arctic temperatures and the sea balance on the Arctic ecosystems. We'll learn about what all of that means in this episode. You can find out more about Gerardo at gerardosolis.com. Gerardo, it's, it's wonderful to meet you. We're excited uh, that you're here on Climify. So to begin, let's start by just getting the basics, who you are and what you do and where you do it. Thank you for having me here. I'm really delighted to, to be here and kind of share, I guess, my five cents to the story. Uh, my name is Gerardo Sandis. Uh, I currently live here in Florida, the Sunshine state, <laughs> but I'm originally from Costa Rica. I'm a born and raised in Costa Rica. And in about 2004, I decided to kind of continue my studies and do my graduate studies here in the U.S. here at the University of Florida. <clears throat> and my kind of formation and, and, and kind of research area has been plant ecology and plant ecologist information. And I've conducted research from the tropics all the way up to the Arctic. And some of the topics that I've been kind of working on have been looking at ecosystem restoration. So looking at degraded ecosystems and how, what would be the best way to kind of bring them back to, to a kind of functional form. I've also been interested in looking at the introduction of non-native species into ecosystems, so looking at plant invasions. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, I've been kind of up in the Arctic, was looking at, a, looking at the ecosystem up there, the tundra, 
and try to figure out how climate change is going to impact the, the tundra in the Arctic. And so we're looking at carbon dynamics. So the big question is, is the tundra going to be a, a net sink or source of carbon kind of moving forward in these future scenarios of climate change? And then I guess more recently now I've kind of switched gears from being mostly a researcher to I'm now more of a lecturer, so I'm on a hundred percent teaching. Yes, hundred percent teaching in the agronomy department. So they were looking for an agroecologist, and so kind of my background in plant ecology kind of fit in that. But uh, I moved more into kind of an applied science than kind of the research I've been doing before. And so I'm in the agronomy department here at the University of Florida, which I started in December, 2019. So a couple of years ago. Yeah. What was it like, um, being in the Arctic since you're from Florida and Costa Rica? What's the temperature like? So yeah, no, it, it, it was, first of all, I, I, I go only in the summers. So <laughs> I, I definitely wasn't there for those really frigid months, but yeah. It definitely took some time getting used to it. I didn't have obviously the, the wear and kind of equipment and stuff to, to live in that kind of environment, but, <laughs> but we had a, an experiment there where we were actually warming the, the tundra with uh, some snow fences and it's kind of counterintuitive that you would accumulate snow to kind of warm the tundra, but it actually works as an insulator for. Yeah, those really frigid temperatures in the air. And so our idea was to use snow to kind of warm it up and get the, the soil temperature to increase. And we we're able to increase it about a degree Celsius and then kind of see how much, what, what would be the dynamics if that soil was to warm. And, and the tundra is, uh, they have a lot of uh, permafrost, which is technically it's a soil that's remains frozen for at least two years. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so the, the question is, once you start warming it, what's going to happen with that soil and the carbon that's in that soil? What's going to happen yet based on all your experiments? Well, <laughs> sadly enough, we've, uh, our experiment has been running for about 16 years and we've been measuring the carbon that's being emitted and, and uptake in, in that whole period. And the. The trend right now is that it's emitting carbon. So it's quite good. Yeah. yeah. It's not good because it's all that uh, organic matter that's in the soil is being decomposed and that's outpacing the amount of carbon that's being uptake by the plants that are currently there. And so that's one of the big kind of questions is if we're in this trajectory, it's always, it's going to be kind of a positive feedback where it's going that carbon that's being released is going to warm up the, uh, the climate as well because it's releasing. Oh, it's a feedback loop. So it's constantly, it's a feedback. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause you're increasing the cause, right? Of, of, of uh, climate change, which is the main gas is CO2 or carbon dioxide. So you're diagnosing a lot of problems up there in the Arctic. Are you also locating solutions there as well, or? So unfortunately not, it, and it's something I get a lot and it, I'm kind of just a dispeller of <laughs> bad news. Why not designers to help you? Yeah. And, but I think, yeah, that definitely 
we're, we're collecting a lot of data. It's, it's, it's a lot of unknowns. There, there's kind of two big theories in the Arctic. Is it, we call it the Arctic greening or the Ar Arctic brown. And so we don't know if over time it's going to switch just because the vegetation is going to change and, and then it'll be able to capture carbon. Oh, see. But, but right now, from what we've been experiencing, it's that it is changing. Another kind of important feature there is that a lot of the soil has ice in the soil. And as that ice actually melts, you get a lot of slumping of the soil. And that creates another big dynamic moisture. And, and, and so we're trying to figure that out as well. Methane then comes into the, the yeah, picture that can be an, an important gas as well. Yeah. And, and maybe we can educate some of our listeners. Methane is, uh, tell us about methane as a, as a greenhouse gas. So methane is also, it's about 43 times a higher capacity of retaining heat than carbon dioxide, but just by the mere volume of what's in the atmosphere and how much it's being exposed, it's yeah, carbon dioxide tends to be the one we talk about the most. Right. But methane like carbon dioxide are these gases that help capture the, the heat that's irradiated from the, from the earth's surface, then it gets captured and then we kind of, uh, Rerouted back to the soil, yeah, to the earth. And so, but, but methane, normally when, when microbes are decomposing organic matter, they're either, if there's a lot of oxygen, they tend to then produce CO2. Mm -hmm. But if there's lacking oxygen, the, the way they kind of decompose this is the, the byproduct, the product uh, that they kind of produces methane. So this methane goes up into the atmosphere and, and is doing this kind of warming effect. But the main difference is that the residence time, how long it can be in the atmosphere without it then decomposing is much shorter than CO2. So it won't remain lifespan of, of methane in the atmosphere isn't as long. So there's a silver lining potentially some hope. <laughs> yeah. And so, so depending, yeah. And, and. So that's where you hear like cows become a big issue because they had a lot of methane. Yeah. Rice paddies are also, so when you think of uh, soils that are inundated, they tend to produce a lot of methane because they lack the oxygen. We do a lot of, of work with climate and, um, most people that I talk with that are, are into some sort of environmental justice work or social justice work have some sort of backstory or some like big epiphany that happened to them. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in what you do as, as a scientist? Sure. Yeah. My, mine wasn't really an epiphany, but more of kind of a gradual interest in, in moving through my career. But I would say probably my father was my main kind of mentor the person that initiated this because he's a, he's an economist of natural resources. So he does a kind of evaluations of supply and demand of natural resources and, and trying to figure out how we can have like a sustainable system where, our, where we're using our resources in, in a convenient way. So I kind of had that background in, in, in exposure as a, at a very young age. 
I didn't want to go into kind of the mathematical and the economist route. So I mean, I, I started exploring a little bit more and, and I found that biology, kind of the biological sciences was the area that, that really influenced or that I, that I thought would be a good fit with what I wanted to study. Was that in, was that in like when you were really young or in college? So that was when, when I was really young, I, I really wanted to kind of understand these big crises we're having, right? Cause we would, you would see all the time that we had all these different crises, environmental crises. I think the ozone layer was really popular back then in the nineties and talking about the ozone. And so I, I just wanted to see how I can contribute to fixing some of these problems. And, and so that was kind of really young and my, I lived in, a when I was around five or six, I, I lived, my father uh, got a job in a research set station in Costa Rica called Tatra. It's a agronomic, tropical agronomic research station in higher education. And so they had all these research plots all over the place. And I would spend all day out there just looking at the different experiments they had cacao, coffee, you name it. They had all these different experiments. I didn't understand anything of what they were doing. It's really interesting. They had a, I think they had one of the largest coffee collections of germplasm in the world. And so they have all these different coffees from different parts of the world. They had bananas. They had a collection of bananas. And I remember there was a banana that had seeds in it, like papaya seeds. And I didn't know why a banana would have seeds in them. And then now kind of after learning genetics and understanding, we, we, we have kind of modified those bananas so that they don't produce seeds. They're there, but they're just like little speckles. So they're genetically modified, most bananas. So they're actually, and bananas, the, the, the natural banana has two sets of chromosomes like humans, right? We, we have 48 pairs, uh, 46 pairs of chromosomes. And, and so what happens is there's, uh, the bananas cross with an, uh, a kind of a mutant that has an extra chromosome and, or is missing a chromosome. So then they have three sets of chromosomes and, and that mu kind of mutation or that extra chromosome, uh, doesn't allow it to, to, to become reproductive but it still produces the banana. And this is a, a technique they use a lot in, in kind of adding chromosome sets and, and to either increase fruit size, increase the, the leaf. And, and so this is something normal. It's not that they're modifying the genetics, it's just that they're adding more pairs of chromosomes. And so, so the banana is what they call the triploid. It has three sets of, uh, of those chromosomes and nothing about banana genetics until right now. So. Yeah. So that, yeah, the banana is, is it, it in theory should have seeds. And so that because it's, uh, it has no seeds, it can't reproduce uh, through seeds. And so there's a lot of issues that have come up through a uh, kind of, uh, diseases that they, because it literally, they use a, they clone each banana and it's almost the same individual that you're just reproducing and it's not crossing with anything because you just can't because it's not producing any seeds. And so your father was working with both coffee and bananas and you were 
So his fields or his plot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he was in charge of kind of the, the whole research area. And, and so they've been working with cacao. They had a lot of different uh, kind of research areas, but yeah, I was exposed to that. And I, I kind of like the biological side of things. I wasn't sure if I'm right to work with animals or plants. And then when I went to, to kind of my undergrad, it was there where I I guess it's just having those really good mentors and professors that kind of motivate you. And, and those were all kind of in the plant science. Yeah. That's where I kind of just took my path, mm-hmm. decided to, to work with. Educators helping to guide. Yeah. It's just those <laughs> that motivate you. They kind of click that light bulb and then you just get really motivated. And, and so that's kind of why I went towards the plant, but I really, before the starting year, the university, I wasn't sure if I wanted to work with animals or plants. Let's just see. Well, as our audience is mainly educators, they can, they can relate to having to mentor and guide people along the way. Probably as you're teach now, you're, <laughs> you're kind of understanding. Yeah. That we're definitely going to impact somebody along the way. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break here for some commercial messages. Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation? And how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. We have a bigger role to play in all phases of the design process, not just the beginning. My name is Rachel Cifarelli, graphic designer, recent college grad, and part of the Climate Designers EDU team. And after graduating, I realized today's classrooms tend to skip over that universal side of design. So if you're a design educator, I want to hear from your students. Help set in motion the first ever project that centers students at the intersection of design education and climate change. I want to know what your students think about sustainable design, how they see climate change impacting their future careers, and what even comes to mind when they hear the term climate design. Send your students to climatedesigners.org slash edu slash new wave survey to take the five question survey or sign up for an interview with me. Help me inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. Most of us know what we need to do to help the planet, like more solar, trees and more bicycles. But even the best of us can get pretty stuck with figuring out how we motivate and inspire millions of people and governments around the world to adopt change. But there is a way. My name is Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer, a designer, and an author. And I interview expert PhD researchers from top universities around the world, like MIT, Harvard, and Stanford, about the psychology of environmental action. And I put these interviews out on my podcast called How to Save the World. I'm inviting you to join me on this wild intellectual journey into the heart of the environmental psyche so that we can unearth these fascinating and critical teachings we can use in our climate campaigns, programs, designs, and startups. You can find my podcast, How to Save the World, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and at anchor.fm forward slash Katie Patrick. I'm sure you get our next question a lot, which is about climate change and how everything is connected to in our personal lives, work, and 
there are a lot of, a lot of issues you're facing. Well, uh, what, what do you feel is the most important thing that needs to be done just by like people like us, everyday people to, to fight or to help solve the climate crisis? Sure. I mean, I don't think there is a silver bullet for, for everyone. <laughs> I think there's really kind of three things that, that come to mind that people should be thinking about. One is to actually study and, and, and try and understand what is the problem, right? What, what, what is the actual problem? We, we hear it a lot, right? Climate change, okay. What is the cause? What, what, where, where is it going? And, and just, just understand the problem. And then I guess the, the second step is to then think about your own personal reality, right? What are, what are some of the things that you do that can impact that? that problem that you've kind of learned about, right? So the main culprit as, as we hear a lot is this carbon dioxide and emissions and burning of fossil fuels. So the, the, the question is, okay, based on your reality and in, in your everyday life, what are some of the things that probably have a high fossil fuel demand that you can reduce? Electronic driving could be one, your diet could be another one, maybe reducing the amount of red meat you eat. Another big culprit is tra air travel. So I, I think more than anything, don't, don't think of it that you're going to have to just stop the life that you currently have and, and not do anything. But I think it's those kind of gradual steps of figuring out, audit, audit yourself. Okay. This is everything that I do and I'm willing to maybe modify a certain aspect of my life to, to kind of improve it. Or decide instead of buying a new car, I'm going to slap some solar panels on my house or sure. something that, 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 but I mean, and, and I think it, it just takes the effort to understand yourself before you kind of decide what it is. Right. And, and, and then I think the, the next most important thing is to understand that other people have different realities, right? That. What could be a solution for yourself might not be a solution for someone else. Great point. Yeah. Because I mean, what if you're not a mediator and your solution was to reduce, not eat, right? Well, then does that person not have to worry about it? <laughs> and, and so, but also it's the reality of income as well. Like we, I just talked about putting some solar panels in your house, but most people probably don't own a house and where would they want it? put solar panels on the ground. So I think it's also thinking about the reality that, that other people have different needs and different aspects, like maybe driving less, but if you, your job depends on you driving, I mean, you're not going to take somebody's. Yeah. No, your third point is really important. I'm a father and I have a partner and a daughter and, you know, they're on the same page for the most part as me, but I think we're at different levels of like investment. Things. Yeah. And, but I think it goes back to that first point, right? Where it's maybe a lack of knowledge of what those, what the issue is and how it's connected. Because I mean, if you go to the supermarket, right. And, and you're like, okay, I'm going to go vegetarian. Then which of all the vegetables and fruits are you going to eat? And then the question there is like, do I eat an apple that's coming from Chile versus a local apple? Right. And so there, there's a lot of things that that you can kind of fine tune and get into the details. But I, I think there are different decisions that, that you can make and at different levels of, of complexity, but, but definitely it's all kind of like a circle, like going back, okay, 
I'm not doing this. It's probably because you're not aware it's an issue or, or something like that. Yeah. Well, speaking of households, one of the many reasons we wanted you to come on podcast was you're married to a design educator <laughs> and this, this shows for design educators. And so we yes. bring in a really important uh, set of overlapping insights to the discussion. So I'd like to turn a little bit about a uh, little, a little bit more about how designers can help do some of the things that you mentioned. As we're design educators here interviewing you, what role do you think we have in helping with the climate crisis? I, I guess based on my, my personal <laughs> window into it's, <laughs> it's graphic design, right? It's not the whole sweep of design, but yeah, graphic design. I think it's, it's just coming up with innovative ways to communicate the crisis, right? I think we as scientists have a kind of very narrow window of how things get communicated. And, and I think, uh, the you as design educators have kind of the capacity of, of, of dealing with the communication part of this crisis, but I, but I also, one thing that I've noticed through kind of my, my, my wife's kind of window of that world is that graphic designers have a, a very kind of intrinsic, unique characteristic that I've noticed is that you tend to work with diverse groups of subjects, right? Like today you might be working with a, a museum that's working and meets, uh, kind of the communication and, and, and all the graphic design for theirs, their specific need. And then tomorrow you're working with a realtor that's going to need to kind of promote their business. And then the next day you're working with a chemist. And so you really have this capacity to kind of find information from very diverse sources and then come up with a, a way to communicate it in an effective way. And, and I find that very fascinating and interesting that at least from right around, like we, we're really kind of narrow tunneled and we're kind of concentrating in our areas of expertise, but I feel graphic designers have this capacity of being exposed to these very vast levels of, of different uh, subject matters. And you're able then to kind of distill all that information and make it uh, in, in communicate it in a very effective way. But yeah, no, I think that's one of the things. And, and so I really think it's kind of the communication part. And that's, that's good to hear. Wanted to, to kind of build on that question here. Um, you, you, you talked about your you know, slim window with, with your wife in terms of you know about design and sun education. Um, what, what do you think in particular we could bring from the world, your world, climate science? Mm-hmm into our world of design education any specific things or general things that you think we can we can look at yeah i think there's i guess one big area that i think and it has to do with data and and i think one of the things that we struggle a lot is because academia and kind of like the scientific community wants our data to be presented in a very specific manner which Obviously it's not made for the masses. <laughs> and, and so I think data visualization is, is something that, and I feel that we could use a lot in, in kind of 
the, the expertise of graphic designers and help us visualize our data. And, and so my, my previous employer was Northern Arizona University and they had a, a center there for ecosystems, sciences and society. And they actually contracted a, he was more of an, a kind of uh, artist and illustrator that helped us kind of get these really complex, uh, I guess, subject matter and, and trying and, and, and kind of come up with a visual in which we can explain what the research we were doing. So I, I think that's one really important thing. And then I think the other one in, in which, again, going back to seeing my, my wife in, in the process of graphic designers is, is that your documentation of, uh, the whole process of, from the very beginning to the product that you guys have, you guys go through so many iterations, but it's all documented and that's part of the product, right? And yeah. Again, yeah. it's, it's all that process. And, and I think from kind of our round of data, like we, we come up, we, we have this figure that we created, it has that dot, but it, there's the story of how you got that dot is kind of lost. We do kind of document, like we went out, we measured this, this time when we did this with this instrument. And so there's, there's some information, but it's not very conducive to understanding. And, and I think that's one of the stories that we're missing from uh, kind of explaining the data so that the public is more confident about it. Because I think there's a now with all these conspiracy theories and people that understanding how like oh how do you know that this right this is the world is really warming how do you know they're not making up the data and so i think we're missing that process of explaining to the public that this is a process this is how we measured it and in a way that again it's easy to communicate because if you put scientists to try and explain it they'll just give you a list of <laughs> i'm ready worries that go over your head yeah, it's just a recipe of instruments and things that we use. And so I think that because the, the graphic design community is so used to creating these kind of process books and, and, and understanding like what that whole iterative process and documenting it, I think we could learn from that or at least get involved in a way that, that, that can help us then document. Cause even like taking pictures of our experiments, we're really bad at that. Like we, we have this communication we have to give out, do we have any pictures of our experiment? Oh my gosh. Well, we had these. So we, we don't really take, we know, we're, we're kind of concentrated in producing the science, but not like the process of creating it, which is important. So tell the story of the data, tell the story of the data. And I think that's what's missing from people believing in the data because I mean, the community, the science community understands and, and leads it, but I think the public is becoming very skeptical, especially now with yeah. a lot of the environment that we're having is, is people are, are, are skeptical. Yeah. And so you need a uh, crew of, uh, photojournalists basically to join you <laughs> at the Arctic. Yeah. And it is like, so I'll volunteer if there's enough room on here. Great. Definitely. <laughs> we would love to have you. <laughs> and we've mentioned your, your wife numerous times, but never her name. Gabby Hernandez. Yes. She's a faculty here at the University of Florida. So, a great design educator. her many, many times. Yes. <laughs> I just didn't think it was fair to keep on saying your wife, your wife. Yeah. 
Let's, let's, let's give him early introducer. Yes. All right. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to put you on the spot here because, um, actually you might be able to answer this question, mm -hmm. the things you just said, but I want you to put yourself in our shoes and you're design educator for the next five weeks and you have to assign a design project. What would that project be? Could be a big idea. Yeah. Doesn't have to be constrained by budget, but uh, yeah. what would you think and, um, would be best suited to, to bridge climate science with, with uh, design? So I think one of the, and this is something that I believe in and, and, and that I think we should probably move more towards is when we, when we contact graphic designers, we tend to contact them after the fact, right? After we've done all the research and done everything, right? And, and I remember <laughs> my, my wife got me saying, yeah, you, you just think of us as beautifiers, right? You got all this content and you just, yeah, you're just gonna, hey, here, make it pretty. <laughs> and, and so I think through, through, I think a project where not even the, the whole kind of ideation of, of, or, or coming up with the research project that we want, where everyone is at the beginning, right? And I think there's a lot of things to learn both ways, right? I think graphic designers are going to then ask researchers questions that, that research haven't really thought about and vice versa. Like the, I, I think probably scientists would be like, well, why did you choose that type? Why are you choosing those colors? Right? What, 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 <laughs> what, 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 what's the, the whole process? Cause I think it, there, there, there's, so, so I think the project more than a specific project, I think it's just the idea of creating something from the very scratch, but including graphic designers and the researchers together, but also so that they kind of respect each other, right? Because I, I think sometimes uh, the graphic designers might think as the researcher, as a client, right? Then a colleague or somebody who's going to work, okay, let's work with this together and try and solve the issue, right? And so, but I think that dynamic requires you partying with someone who believes that graphic design has a lot to offer and you have to also believe in the science that has something to offer. You're kind of volunteering yourself for many of the design educators. <laughs> Not because you match all those things you said. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And, and I think that's, that, that's uh, something that, that we need to do more because I think for, for, from, I guess, even from the graphic design perspective, you understanding the problem and, and it's, and, and like I said, it's even the whole data creation and process. Like if you're in there doing, I mean, not hiring you as just a photographer, you would go out and collect data. We would work together and, and, and I think that's kind of the dynamics that I, I think are going to be needed kind of moving forward in these really big crises. Cause it really takes everyone to be emerged and, and, and submerged in the, in the issue so that they, these solutions can kind of come forward. And, and so I think, yeah, just having a, this, this, that's kind of my, I mean, it, it doesn't only have to be graphic designers and the researchers, you can bring in social science, everyone's welcome, but I think it's creating a, a kind of level playing field where everyone respects each other and, and everyone has an opinion and, and, and can contribute, right? 
And and I think that's where where I think a lot of these solutions and, and information is going to come out when we get to that level. Because if we kind of are all working separately, we, we can kind of produce some type of solution. But I, I do believe that the sum of the parts is, 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 is better than the end level. Yeah. We're definitely preaching to the choir here in that. <laughs> Designers have been for years um, saying, give us a seat at the adult table. You know, we want to, we want a chance to, to be on the level playing field and be part of the team, not just, yeah, that is, uh, like you said, like make it pretty. Yeah. Make it pretty. And, and like I said, that I think the graphic designers, because they've been exposed to so many different diverse subject matters, like they probably worked with an environmental lawyer <laughs> that has, and they've done work. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> so the the whole round and, and so I think what you what designers can bring to the table is very important, but not just like beautifying, but also that whole thought process and 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 I think even one one, one thing that I've also noticed from graphic designers, they're really good at taking critique. <laughs> and you're you're used to every day getting, every day getting critique. And so when you combine those, they're probably the some rough edges, but I think in the end, scientists will, will become better scientists if they get questioned, right? So it gives me a, a lot of ideas I might have to reach out to you. Well, we're coming up to the end here and didn't want to take up uh, too much of your time today. But I wanted to ask one last thing as we kind of wrap up is, you know, what, there's a lot of, you know, you, you see it all like from your, your work up there in the Arctic and other projects you do. What gives you hope that we're going to have a, a better tomorrow based on everything that you're, you're collecting data up there? I think that, that the hope comes in, in kind of these types of interactions. I think once everyone understands the problem in a way that then is start to create these different venues and in different ways to kind of address the issue, I think we as humans were able to kind of take us in this trajectory because of our past, but I think our future is, is going to require these type of interactions that we're having right now to kind of solve it. And, and I think as long as we're moving in that direction, I think it, it, solutions are going to come up and, and at least become more aware of, of the issue. So I, I think in the end, that's what gives me hope is that there, there are people who are interested there. There are people who are trying to think out of the box and trying to come up with solutions that, that then can kind of shed some light into the issue and hopefully come up with solutions. So, so I, I, I think it's out there. It's just a matter of time that we, we kind of get to it. Right. Yeah, definitely. It reminds me of the Greta Thunberg statement where that uh, the older generations have failed us, but homo sapiens have failed yet. Exactly. We're, we're still alive. Horano, uh, thank you so much for joining uh, our show and uh, look forward to all the work that you're doing up there and uh, helping us uh, learn more about climate and so we can, can help communicate it to the masses uh, as designers. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And yeah, hopefully, who knows, maybe in the future we'll be working together. I love it. I love it. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today to Climify, but don't leave just yet. I've got more goodness for you coming up. Music. 
As the pandemic has really affected our friends in the performing arts, where they're unable to book shows, tour, or sometimes even get into a recording studio, I thought I'd highlight one at the end of each of our episodes. Since this is a podcast for designers, the musicians featured on each are also designers. Well, I'll turn it over to our first artist to explain who they are and the reasons behind their music. Hey, this is Joseph Shipp. Uh, I live in Nashville where I work as a designer at Offset Partners. I also write songs and make music in the indie folk space. And this song is called Where You Are. And it was written at the beginning of 2019, but I didn't record it until the middle of lockdown um, in 2020 last year. Um, it's kind of foreboding because it's, it's, it's really about being stuck at home um, for whatever reason, but maybe in this case, social anxiety, uh, and then trying to overcome that reality in some way. Anyways, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you want to learn more about my music or my work, uh, go to josephship.com. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-S-H-I-P-P. Or on Instagram at shipmusic. All right, thanks.
Thanks for listening to Climify. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.